You're listening to the Liberty Grace Church Sermon Podcast. For more information, visit libertygrace.ca. I worked for a plumbing company uh, for six years, so mainly summers, but I also worked there um, on Saturdays. And in my last year, I worked there from April until Christmas when I was hired by the church I pastored for um, 28 years. It was a plumbing company that was out in the country. And so because of that, we dealt with septics and cisterns because I grew up in the country. And so sometimes it was a disgusting job. The cistern is where your refuse goes when you flush the toilet and you live in the country. If you don't know that, if you wonder what that is, uh, the septic, sorry, not the cistern. Septic, you, cistern you drink, septic is where the refuse goes when you um, flush the toilet. And so occasionally if we were replacing a septic on a hot 35 degree day and uh, it was over top of an old septic, the mosquitoes and bugs would just be deplorable as we were doing that. The man I worked for, he hired about 12 employees and he was a really good man. Uh, he was a man that was a community leader. He was well-respected. I can say this having worked for him for six years, uh, that he would never rip anybody off. He said to his employees all the time that my name, his name was Elwood Lehman, my name is on our product. So even though it gets buried behind the walls, even though it's covered by drywall and concrete, everything needs to be done precisely right because my name is on it. So he was a man full of integrity. He was a leader in his church, even though it was a liberal church. It was a church where the gospel was not preached. In fact, I was there one time uh, when the moderator of the United Church of Canada was there, and I was a young man studying to go into ministry, and the moderator of the United Church of Canada preached a sermon on the wise man built his house upon the rock and the foolish man upon the sand. It was a dedication of a new portion of the building they had just built, and he said, without exaggeration, that the point of that moment of Jesus' teaching is to say that you're to use the best construction company, the best plumbers, the best electricians in town. And he named all of the companies that the church had used and said, because if you use companies that aren't as good as them, your house will fall down. But if you use good companies, your house won't fall down. I was astonished, of course. Um, but this man was a good man. I, I remember if we worked late on a Friday night because we could get a, a septic finish and we worked till eight o'clock and uh, we could take the backhoe home that he would give us each a couple of hundred extra dollars, just cash. Um, and he'd pay us whatever he was paying us. But he'd say, this is, I'd, I'd always say no. He said, no, no, no. He said, I get to float all the equipment home. Like what you've saved me tonight is probably $1,500 by staying a couple of extra hours on a Friday night when I know you had plans. So this is the thank you. He was just a good man. Um, and I remember when he was dying with leukemia and he was in his 80s and my wife and I had kept contact with him and his wife over all those years. And I had shared the gospel with him over and over again, but he always just said he was good. He was good. I remember sitting busy with, in the hospital. He looked at me at one point and he said, I, I said, how are you doing? And he said, I'm scared. I said, why are you scared? And he said, I'm afraid to die. And I said, why are you afraid to die? And he says, I don't know if I've been good enough for God. Don't know if I've been good enough for God. That is the point of this entire encounter Jesus has with this rich young ruler. Verse 17 says this, as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? 
Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? There's no one good except God alone. Now, this is interesting, right? So we find out from Matthew that this uh, person is, a, is, a, is young. We find out from Luke, because this account is in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that he's a ruler. That's why we call him the rich, young ruler. Because when you look at all three accounts, you see that he's called young in Matthew. He's called a ruler in Luke. And so this young man comes up to him who's wealthy and has some type of power. And he comes and he kneels before Jesus and he says, good teacher. What do I do to inherit eternal life? Which is an odd question. Because what do you do to inherit anything? Someone has to die for you to inherit something. It's an odd question just from the beginning. But Jesus doesn't answer the question. He asks him a question. Why do you call me good? There's no one good but God alone. Now, this is really important. Jesus isn't saying he's not good. Jesus is saying, if you're going to call me good, make sure you know why you're calling me good. If you're going to call me good, make sure you're calling me good because you know I'm God the Son. You see, the rich young ruler is just saying this to Jesus, thinking he's a great teacher, he's a miracle worker. And he just wants to find favor with Jesus, just like sometimes people at work want to find favor with a superior or a boss and say, hey, you do such excellent work, right? Can you teach me? Meaning I'd like a promotion. Good teacher. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus is saying, why do you call me good? There's no one good but God alone. If you're going to call me good, make sure you know why. Because the whole encounter here is about the man's goodness. Listen, from Romans 3, the word of God says this. There's no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands. There's no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There's no one who does good, not even one. You see, when we compare ourselves to God's goodness, to God's holiness, to God's perfection, we all fall short. We all fall short of God's standard. Only God is good. And we choose to sin, just like Adam and Eve did. Just like the first created people, Adam and Eve, chose to rebel against God, we do that. Now, if you have a hard time with that, and if tonight you're a believer, I assume most of us here are, though maybe not all, but if you're a believer here tonight, here's how you know you struggle with this. Even after God's Spirit is in you and you've been walking with the Lord, you still sin. I still sin. Our hearts are inclined to sin. They're inclined that way. They lean that way. We're not good. We're not good. Well, Jesus then says, you know the commandments. Don't murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't bear false witness. Don't defraud. Honor your father and mother. And the young man said to Jesus, teacher, I've kept all these since I was a boy. I've kept all these since I was a boy. Next slide. Kept all these since I was a boy, since my youth. What's he saying? I've been good. Did you catch the whole interaction here? Good teacher, why do you call me good? This is what you need to do to inherit eternal life. You need to be perfect. You need to be good. The young man says to Jesus, I've been good. I've kept all these since I was a boy. I've been good. I've been good. You see, this is the whole intercourse here. The young man thinks he's good when in fact no one is good. And here's the problem when you think being good is what gets you to heaven. This is what happens. You end up either struggling with insecurity, struggling with pride, 
or being devastated. You struggle with insecurity because you know deep down inside you're not good. You know deep down inside that you can't keep God's standards. So like my former employee, Elwood, years later after I'd worked for him, when I'm sitting in a hospital with him while he's dying with leukemia, he didn't know if he'd been good enough for God. People become insecure when they're trusting their goodness to get to heaven because all of a sudden, when it comes time, they realize no one's good enough for God. Or they become proud. I've met lots of people who become proud. They somehow think that they're good, and in their goodness, they look and they judge on everyone else. Well, I would never do that. I would never act like that. I would never say that. I would forgive them. Did you hear what she did? Did you hear what happened to him? And we stand in pride and judge when we think our goodness is what gets us to heaven. Or we're devastated. And the devastation comes because we know we sin and we recognize that on the judgment day, God has the right to judge us. Because somehow in one of our missteps, we realize I can't be good. And we don't know what to do. I remember when one of the young Buddhist men came to faith in Christ at our church and I was sitting out with him the coffee, and he was an outstanding athlete. I think I said this in the Q&A one time, one night, but um, he was an outstanding athlete. He was like one of Ontario champ champions um, in track and field. And while we were sitting, discussing things, um, having a conversation, we were talking about sin. And I said to him that sin isn't just the rebellion against God when you lie or you cheat or you steal or you break one of the Ten Commandments. Sin is putting anything in place of God. Sin is choosing to want something more than you want God, to spend more time with it is, whether it's your studies, a hobby, your athleticism. I mean, he was an outstanding academic and he was an outstanding athlete. And he found that mind-blowing. He was like, I've never thought of this before. That when I put my athleticism before my relationship with God, when I put my academics before my relationship with God, I'm sinning. That is sinning. Sinning is dethroning God. It's putting something else in God's place. Verse 21. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go, sell all you have, give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Come and follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. This is really important. I want you to notice a couple of things. Jesus didn't call him a liar. Jesus knew he wasn't good, but he didn't say liar. Like, what's wrong with you? Know what the text says. Jesus looked at him and, did you catch that? Loved him. Jesus had compassion on him. He, he knew the young man was walking in an illusion. He thought he was good and he wasn't. He thought he could earn his way to heaven and he wasn't. And so what does Jesus do? Jesus says, I want you to imagine your life without servants, without money, without possessions. I want you to imagine your life without anything but me. That's what Jesus is asking him. I want you to take everything you have and sell it and give it to the poor and come and follow me. I want you to imagine what your life would be like if all you had was me, Jesus said. If you had nothing else, if you had no mansions, no servants, no money, no possessions, if all you had was me. And what does Jesus offer him? This is incredible. Jesus offers him the chance to be the 13th disciple. Jesus offers him to come and follow him, just like he did the other 12 men. 
Jesus offers this man to come and be the 13th disciple. It's the only time you see this in Scripture in this way. But the young man walks away sad because money was central to his identity. His possessions was central to his identity. You see, there's a term we use theologically called total depravity. This is a quote from me. It says this, Total depravity is not that we are in every way as bad as we could be, but that we are not in any one way as good as we should be. It's total in that we are not in any one way as good as we should be. Often when we think of total depravity, we think of people that are murderers or pedophiles. God's not saying it has to go to that extreme. It's total in that sin touches us in every way. So even our motives are tainted with sin. Even when we're going to serve the poor, sometimes it's tainted with sin because we're hoping someone will notice us or someone will see us or someone will appreciate us. Even our good works for God are often tainted with sin because we're hoping someone will recognize us or someone will think we should serve in a different way or be promoted to something else. It's total in that it affects all of us. Sin has tainted every part of us. You see, Jesus didn't want this young man to sell everything he had to be saved. How do you know that? You can't do anything to be saved. If he was able to sell his stuff to be saved, he'd have been saved by his works. But we can't be saved by our works. So why did Jesus say, go sell everything you have and come and follow me? Because Jesus wanted him to know, to understand that he wasn't good. Jesus wanted him to know, to understand that he was lacking this one thing, that his possession were what was his idol. His possessions were what he was entrusting. His possessions were what he had put his hope in. His possessions were what he had found his identity in. Jesus wanted this young man, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? I've kept all the commandments, Jesus. I've been good. He wanted this young man to be able to admit, I'm not good and I need a savior that I can't get to heaven on my own that I haven't kept the commandments that I actually need you Jesus but instead the young man walks away sad he walked away sad you see sometimes we misinterpret this text as if Jesus wanted him to do something to be saved there's nothing you can do to be saved except believe in Jesus so when we know that theologically, you have to ask yourself why this is happening. It's happening because Jesus wanted this young man to be able to admit he wasn't good and that he needed someone else. I want you to just think of a moment what's really important to you in life. I, uh, I buried one of my best friends yesterday. He passed away at 51 with brain cancer. And uh, he was only diagnosed just before Christmas. And the funeral will be in a couple of weeks. We had a graveside yesterday. And um, his wife, you know, they got three kids, 20 to 24. His first granddaughter, his daughter was married just over two years ago. His first granddaughter was born a week before he died. Got to meet her once, and he wasn't in a good state in terms of, I mean, he was in the ICU to meet her. Um, and yet his wife's hope is in Jesus. For those of you that are in a relationship with someone, married or engaged, or if that person was gone tomorrow, would you find hope in Christ still? Would you be able to say, I grieve 
but not like those without hope, like the Apostle Paul says. I grieve, but there's still hope. What if you lost your job? What if you were unable to work out again? What if your hobby was taken from you? What if your mobility was gone? Is there anything you could lose that would cause you to be angry with God and somehow blame him for? Or is Jesus the centerpiece of your life? And even if everything falls apart around you, you can say, I've trusted him. He's the source of my life. An idol, this is a quote from Tim Keller, who I really appreciate. An idol is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give. Anything that is so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living. What is it that you could lose that would make your life worth hardly feel living? Or do you know that regardless if you lost everything around you like Job, that God is your centerpiece? So how do you know if you have an idol? I'll get to this in a few weeks when I talk about money, but if you were to take your credit card statements and your bank card statements, and I was able to flash them up on the screen right now in front of everyone, right? I don't have them, don't worry. But if I could put your credit card statements and your bank card statements up here, what does it say about your heart? Because Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your... There your heart is, right? Where your treasure is, there your heart is. What, what, would, what would your statement say about your heart? Does it say kingdom of God first? Does it talk about giving to liberty grace? Does it show that you support missions? Or is it all about you and what you want? When you daydream, when, when, you're just, when you've just got spare time and you're daydreaming, where does your mind go? Does it go to the kingdom? Does it go how you're going to befriend a neighbor? Does it go to how you're going to witness to someone? Does it... Go to how you're going to share the gospel with someone. Does it go to how you're going to care for someone who needs assistance and help? Or when you have spare time and you're just daydreaming, do you dream about a bigger place and a bigger salary and a promotion somewhere? Because where your mind naturally wanders when you've got nothing to think about and where you spend your money most easily says something about your priorities in life and your heart. And if those things aren't the kingdom, you have to ask yourself this question. Am I really saved? Am I really saved? Has God actually saved me? Or am I just going through some motion? You can show up at church every week or most weeks. You can read your Bible. You can pray and not be saved. Because salvation is about a relationship we have with the living God that changes everything. It doesn't mean we're perfect. None of us are perfect. We'll struggle with sin our whole lives. But don't you want your thoughts when you've got nothing to think about to wander to the kingdom of God? Don't you want your money when you're not trying to budget and prioritize everything to be thinking about how you can maximize generosity for the kingdom of God? Don't you want to be thinking about what it means to be sharing Christ with people? Um, at the church I pastored for 28 years, there's a missionary there today, Jen Miller. Her and her husband served in Uzbekistan for a season. Three kids were born there. Heart of a Muslim country, learning the language, becoming a professor, sharing the gospel. When they were back here for a four-month you know, respite furlough, 
the government went in, took all of their stuff, believing they were missionaries, trying to witness to the Muslim population, took everything they had. So imagine living somewhere for 10 years of your life. All of your pictures back then, because they weren't all digital, all of your possessions are just gone. What would you say? Well, I served the Lord for 10 years. Whew, that was good. Let's find a regular job here at the University of Toronto, because he could have worked anywhere. Instead of being a missionary, I mean, when you have that kind of education, you could be wherever you want in the world. But he chose to serve in a Muslim country to share the gospel. Well, they went, because the Uzbek people were also in Tajikistan, they went then to Tajikistan to serve the Lord. And they did that faithfully for a number of years. And then they were called by their mission to go to New Zealand and to become missionaries that would teach other people to become missionaries. He'd only been there a short time. He and his wife were off for a morning run. He was thin, he was fit, he was healthy. And on that run, he had a heart attack and died suddenly and instantly. And is gone. Here's a man who had spent two decades of his life faithfully serving the Lord. When everything of theirs was taken, humanly speaking, they went to another country to serve the Lord again. His wife loved Jesus deeply. Continues to serve the Lord well. I mean, if that was you, how angry would you be? Where would you be? I mean, where would your heart be? Or would you say, even though you would grieve the loss of one you loved, that Jesus, I know you've got me, and whatever you do is good. Well, verse 23, Jesus looks around at his disciples and says, how difficult will it be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God? Do you know who he's talking about? He's talking about pretty much every one of us in this room. Now, you may not believe that, but you know most of us in this room are some of the wealthiest people on the entire planet. You know, if you compare us to most people in the world, right, where 840 million people will be starving to death tonight, will be hungry. Do you know that most of us here aren't worried about starving to death tonight? Most of us here aren't worried about where our next plate of food will come from. We are some of the richest people on the planet right here, right now. Oh, you may not feel that way when you look at your bank account and your rent, but you are. And Jesus says what? How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. What's he saying? Greed will capture the heart of people in a particular way. I'll get to this in a few because I talk about money. I'm not even talking about money tonight, but Jesus talks more about money in the gospel of Luke than any other single subject. If you read through Luke, just in a single setting, you'll see that there's all kinds of talk about money in Luke, right? The widow's might is in Luke. Zacchaeus is in Luke. The parable um, of, uh, of, 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 of the man, the shrewd manager is in Luke. There's just so much talk about money in Luke. Chapter after chapter after chapter is just about money and the kingdom of God and what it looks like. And what Jesus is saying here in Mark is money has a particular power to blind us to what we really need. And so he's saying that it's difficult for those who have money and wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Verse 24, the disciples are amazed at his words. And Jesus says to them again, children, the only time he dresses the disciples as children in the gospels, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. Now note the difference. The first time he says how difficult it is for the wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. This time, you see what he says? How difficult it is for anyone to enter the kingdom of God. Just how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. And then he says this, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now, some people want to talk about the fact that 
they think that somewhere in the Middle East there was some type of entrance passageway that would look like a needle. No one, no one knows if that was true. No one can find that. There's no, there's no proof or evidence of that. What Jesus is literally saying is you take a needle that people use to sew. You even take a big needle and you try to put a camel through it. And they said it's harder for a rich person to go to heaven than to put a camel through that needle. Because if you try to put that camel through that needle, you're going to have a big mess at the end. Right? Because it's harder, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of the needle than a rich person to go to the kingdom of God. And the disciples are amazed. In fact, in verse 25, it says, they're exceedingly astonished, and they say to Jesus, then who can be saved? You see that? They say to Jesus, who can be saved? Why? Because they assumed if you were wealthy, you had God's favor. They assumed if, if, if you were given wealth by God, that you were blessed by God. They assumed that wealth meant God's blessing. Even the disciples didn't understand what God was doing. And they just naturally associated wealth with blessing and favor. And then what does Jesus say? This is beautiful. Well, with man, it's impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. That is the good news of the gospel. We can't be saved. Our money can't save us. Only Jesus can. And though money may have and greed may have a particular um, grasp on our hearts in our consumeristic culture, Jesus says, I'm able to even overcome that. Jesus needs to overcome our greed in our culture. You know that? In our lives, in our hearts. I'll get to this. I, I'm warning you that I'm going to get to a topic on money in a few weeks, right? And, and when I get to money and talk about it, it's really clear. Jesus expects us to start with a tithe, right? And then move to a place of generosity. That we start with 10%, which is pretty easy, before tax. And then we move to a place of generosity, well beyond 10%. And it's really clear in Scripture that God is first. That's why he requires our first fruits by the languages used in scripture. So it's not mortgage, then God. It's not rent, then God. It's not food, then God. It's God. It's simply God. And everything else comes after it. The first time, anytime money enters into your bank account from a paycheck, anytime money enters in, enter in, the first thing you should do with that is just e-transfer it or take money out and give it to the Lord. Right? I, I believe firstly to the church you're worshiping at, Liberty Grace, and then at times to other things the Lord calls you to. I'll hit on this more in a few weeks. But it's just important to note that this is part of what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about the rich young ruler, and the disciples are shocked. They don't understand this because they assume that wealth means God's favor and blessing, and they haven't yet understood that it doesn't. Some of the godliest people I know are some of the poorest people I've met. And they have a deep and abiding love in Jesus Christ. And they trust him in a way that I have not even learned to trust him yet. But anyone can be saved. What's impossible for man is not impossible for God. So I remember sitting with Awad that night when he told me he was scared to die because he didn't know if he'd been good enough for God. And I explained to him that none of us are good enough for God. And I walked him through the gospel. I read several passages with him. I'd probably stay with him an hour and a half. And at the end of that time, I looked at him and I said, would you like to receive Christ as Savior tonight? He said, I would. 
And he prayed to receive Christ as Savior. I used to pray for people. And then I would just ask people to pray. I want them to pray. I'd explain to them how they could pray and just let them pray. I got a call from the chaplain the next day, evangelical chaplain, where he was in hospice, called me and said, Dwayne, I want you to know, whatever happened last night, God has changed this man's life. He's completely filled with joy today. The next day, two days later, I went back to see him. He died that day. I, did, I didn't know he was going to die. I helped feed a meal to him, just a, a bit of food. His wife had already passed on a year before. Um, and uh, his kids were there. And before I left the room, he took my hand. He had big hands. I mean, when he was a teenager, he would dig post holes, like where the hydro poles go, by hand in the winter, because they would pay the farm boys a dollar a hole, a dollar a hole to dig them. And he'd say, first, we'd have to get rid of the snow. Then we'd have to chip through the frost. Then we could dig the hole. Could you imagine? That's what they did, a dollar a hole. So his hands were big. He took his hand in mine, and he said this, take care of your family. Take care of your church. I'm not afraid to die. I know I'll see Jesus. Because he knew he didn't need to be good. You see, God doesn't save us because we're good. We're not good. God saves us because he's good. Did you hear that? God doesn't save us because we're good. We're not good. God saves us because he's good. Is that not the gospel? The good news that God chooses to save us because he's good and he delights in saving people. He delights in saving people who are greedy. He delights in saving people who think that they've got everything together. He delights in saving people who think that they're good. He delights in saving. He delights in saving people and taking lives and allowing us to admit that we need a savior, that we need a great physician, that we need someone to walk alongside of us because none of us we could do on our own. God loves to save because he's good. And so I think of Zacchaeus, right? Jesus is entering Jericho. Zacchaeus is a chief tax collector. He's wealthy, but he knows he's missing something. He's short, so he climbs up in a sycamore tree to see Jesus. Jesus tells him to come down because he's going to spend time in his house. And what happens? People are accusing Jesus of spending time with tax collectors and sinners. And Zacchaeus says, Lord, Half of my possessions today I give to the poor. And if I have cheated anyone, I will pay them back four times. That's generosity. That's a changed heart. That's transformation. And what does Jesus say? Today salvation has come to this house. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Listen to this. This is Malcolm Muggridge. This is a long quote. Listen. I may, I suppose, regard myself or pastor being as a relatively successful man. People occasionally stare at me in the streets. That's fame. I can fairly easily earn enough to qualify for admission to the higher slopes of the eternal revenue. That's success. Furnished with money and a little fame, even the elderly, if they care to, may partake of trendy diversions. That's pleasure. It might happen once in a while that something I said or wrote was sufficiently heated for me to persuade myself that it represented a serious impact on our time. That's fulfillment. All these things are true of him. Yet I say to you and I beg you to believe me, multiply these tiny triumphs by a million, add them all together, and they are nothing, they are less than nothing. They are a positive impediment 
measured against one drop of that living water that Christ offers to the spiritually thirsty, irrespective of who or what they are. Is that not a beautiful quote? Here's a man who realized Jesus is everything. Well, quickly, and I'll close off. So Peter then says to Jesus, but we've left everything to follow you. Jesus, we've done this. We've left it all behind to follow you. Jesus said, truly, I tell you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or land for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and land, along with persecution or suffering, and in the age to come eternal life. You know, for some people, it's really hard when you turn your life to Christ. I remember when Rick gave his life to Christ from a Buddhist home and his mom sat on the edge of his bed the night he was being baptized, the night before, and said, we're Buddhist, not Christian. I'm not going to stop you from going to the baptism, but I'm not going to come. I remember sitting with him two weeks later because his mother was opposed to his faith. And we were sitting having lunch and he looked at me and he said, he was 17, and he said, you know, I didn't understand what I got when I got the gospel. He said, I, I, knew, I knew I got Jesus. I got that. I knew I'd be saved. But I didn't know I'd get a whole new family. I didn't know I'd get people that would welcome me into their homes. I didn't know I'd get people that would come and look after me. I didn't know I'd get people that would come and adopt me as if I was their son, as if they were my aunts and uncles. I didn't know I would get that. I remember when Alex was worshiping at our church and studying at McMaster, and he'd become part of our church community. And on the Sunday he was leaving, after four years, he was going to study overseas in Europe, and he had come to faith through a non-Christian home. He just wanted to say a few things to our congregation. He had led Bible studies. We had a transient church similar to Liberty Grace. Lots of students would come through, and in a, a poor community, lots of people that were more marginalized would be part of our community. And then as they were more upwardly mobile, as the gospel gripped their hearts, if they weren't struggling with mental health illness, often the gospel also betters people's lives, right? They have all these connections with people that they didn't have when they were dealing drugs or struggling in other environments. And all of a sudden they have all these connections with people as the gospel first cleans them up. And then they now all these people that have these opportunities to help them move forward. And so that happens with a lot of people. And then as their lives better, like we can't live in this neighborhood anymore and they move out. So Alex as a student was leaving after four years and he was heading um, uh, overseas for more studies. And he looked at our congregation. And he said, you know, I, I came to Christ through an un unsaved home. And he says, I leave here. And he began to weep. He said, I have found a family I didn't know I could ever have. He said, the only reason I would have stayed in Hamilton was for this church. Because he said, my family is now here. My brothers and sisters are now here. Now, you might be sitting here thinking, well, where are my brothers and sisters in Christ? Here's the most important question. Are you ready? If you're sitting here wondering who your brother and sister in Christ is, the question should be, are you a brother or sister in Christ? I remember preaching a sermon on this at one point in time. It was a different passage of scripture, but on community. And a woman came up to me and she said, I'm so glad you preached that at my church today because people here needed to hear how to treat me better. Yeah, no, no, that's a true story. And I said, do you think the sermon was about them or about you? She said, oh, it was for them for sure. And I said, listen, I said, if you think it was about them, I think the problem is your heart. Because I said, 
yeah, I have a prophetic voice. I have no problem with that. I said, so none of you want to talk to me after the service. That was fine. I said, I said, here's the deal. I said, if you're coming here believing this is for everybody else, the truth is it's for you. So who are you going to invite over this afternoon? Who are you going to have out tomorrow night? Who are you going to welcome in? Who are you going to befriend? Who are you going to be a sister in Christ? If you're waiting for everybody else, you've totally misunderstood the gospel. You totally misunderstood what Jesus is calling you to. He's calling you to be that sister. He's calling you to be that brother. He's calling you to be the one inviting. He's calling you. What does he call us to do? It's not hard. I mean, it's impossible. Right? Take up our cross and follow him. I mean, we know it. It's impossible to do without his strength. But it's not rocket science. We know it. We know what we're to do. But we bellyache all the time about how people don't treat us the way we should be treated, don't welcome us the way we deserve to be welcomed, don't care for us. Instead of saying, no, God's called me to do it. God's called me to be the one to welcome. God's called me to be the one to reach out. God's called me to be the one to talk. God's called me to be the one that invites. God's called me to do it. So that people can experience fathers and brothers and sisters Mother's children land and the kingdom of God. Oh, and he says, by the way, it won't always be easy. There'll be persecution. There'll be suffering. But then one day there'll be eternal life. So three quick things and I'm done. Only God is good. Only God is good. And aren't you thankful that God who is good makes salvation possible through Jesus Christ? That the one who is good came down, took our sin upon himself, died in our stead, so that he could grant us his righteousness. So that when the Father looks at us and sees his Son, for anyone who's believed in him, he says we're good. Because when he sees us, he sees Jesus. Is that not great news? All of my sin, all of my faults, whatever it be, Pride, greed, arrogance, all placed on him, Jesus, on a cross, so that by believing in him, he grants me his righteousness, so that when the Father looks upon me, he sees his Son. You see, I can't trust in my goodness. I trust in the one who's been good on my behalf. That's Jesus Christ. So only God is good. God has made salvation possible in Jesus Christ. And lastly, and I'm done. He can save anyone. It is the good news of the gospel. No one is beyond his grip of grace. The CEO of whatever company you work for who makes whatever kind of money that you find unimaginable to even understand, he can save. Do you believe that? He can save anyone. He can grab a hold of any heart. He can touch any life. He can touch the lives of people who think they're good. Who thinks they're good? There's lots of people in liberal churches who think they're good. There's lots of non-believers who are now agnostic or atheistic who talk about care for the environment or justice and do so to a certain extent who think they're good. Who can God save? Any one of them. He can open up any eye. He can open up any heart. He can save the person who's so self-assured because they're confident that their money is what they rely on and show them that their money is not and they can't take it with them and he can save them. God can save anyone. You think of the people around you today who you know who aren't walking with the Lord. Friends, family member, neighbors, colleagues at work. People that you're like, I couldn't even have a gospel conversation with them. There's no way they would turn away from me. God can save anyone. 
And oh, one day if he opens that door into their lives, would you step through it? And would you boldly and kindly share the gospel with them? Because do you know who they need? They need the same Savior that you've received. They need Jesus Christ. Because there's no one good except God alone. And God came down to take our sin upon himself and grant us his goodness so we could enjoy him forever. Would you pray with me? We're thankful for these incredible encounters in scriptures, Jesus, and the way that you interacted with people when you were here. And for anyone who's here tonight who hasn't yet received you as Savior, I pray your grace upon them, that you would have opened their eyes by your Spirit to show them that you indeed are good and you love to save. And even tonight, God, would they turn to you for salvation. And God, for those of us that are here that know you, I pray, God, that we would be a group of believers that would express love and grace toward each other in such a way that people would see that there's a flourishing that happens in your kingdom that can't happen anywhere else because you bring people together from every language, custom, culture, and tribe to become unified under you as our main identity and as the family of God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.